Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Okay, let's get started. We're going to try and get through two chapters tonight. So we're in chapter 19. Let's pray and then we're going to get started. Father, we are grateful for this time that we have. We are grateful for the blessings that we enjoy, Lord, this building and the comforts that we do have and enjoy. Lord, we do pray for those who are in uh, the way of the hurricane. And Lord, we pray that the damage would be minimal and you would watch out for the life and safety for all those people, especially those who aren't being cared for, um, the elderly, the homeless, Lord, those who are sick and unable to get themselves out of harm's way. Lord, may others step in and be a help. Father, may we always recognize the needs around us and be compassionate, wise, and represent you in all that we can do. Bless this time we have as I go through these two chapters, Lord. I pray for clarity, uh, Lord, that you would speak through these words even beyond what I would say, uh, Lord, that there is definitely more that you are speaking than I can convey, and I pray it would be conveyed in some way. And I do thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are coming down to the stretch. These two chapters really do kind of go together in their context before we turn the page all together in chapters 21 and 22. I remember we will be stopping midweeks on October 24th uh, for the rest of this year, and so we should finish it right on time. But we do need to get through these two chapters. So Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 1, we'll start with verses 1 through 10. After this, again, how many times have we heard John saying something like this, after this? And so Once again, there's a building upon building, a layer upon layer. But after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has commanded the great prostitute who corrupted, condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, and and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Once again, we're seeing a contrast. We're seeing a contrast here between the prostitute or, again, some translations will say whore because the whole idea is to be one of shocking and offensiveness. And in verse, that takes place in verse 2. And then the wedding of the lamb or the bride of Christ takes place in verse 7. Weddings and marriages aren't what they used to be. And some of that is good and some of that is bad. Right. What's bad is that weddings have become so lavish, so expensive, so encompassing that a lot of people choose not to get married just because of the stress and expense. It is too much of a hassle. It's not worth going through. And so they choose not to get married at all. Some of the good things is that some people their desire to get married and to make this commitment with someone shows up even when there isn't a lot of money and they do it in ways that are very creative, very personal, and wanting to bring about this, again, kind of covenant that they are making with this person. And at the heart of the analogy that we're getting to about the bride or the wedding is that of promise, is that of vow, right? That's the important part of a wedding is the commitment. That is what it's really all about. And so here the analogy is the promise, the vow, the faithfulness, the for better, for worse. And they have been seeing for worse in the persecution that they've been going through. And God promises to his world, to the human race, to those who are part of this new Israel that he's been talking about, a wedding. The symbol beyond the glitz and glamour of Babylon, beyond all the affluence that has tried to seduce them, even as we've seen in the harlot on the beast, Beyond all of that is the commitment. In celebration form, we begin back in the throne room, the temple, so to speak, the elders, the four living creatures, as we've seen earlier and referred throughout this. 
And once again, we see a song comes up of this. And as in chapter 5, they celebrated the Lamb's victory, giving him the right to open the seals so that the scroll could be read. And now they lead the praises of God along with this huge crowd. And we can assume it's the same crowd that we heard of at the end of chapter 5. And again, we saw it in chapter 7. Again, this kind of reoccurring thing. It just kind of keeps showing up from these different vantage points. And it seems strange to see praise connected with judgment. At least that's not what we are used to doing. When we sing praises, it's not about judgment usually. Um, But it wouldn't have been considered strange to those who have suffered, were suffering, or had seen suffering come to them and then to have the idea of it coming to an end, right? This this overthrow is final. It is finally done. And we see that in verse 3 when it says the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It means it's done and there's no going back. The declaration that our God reigns is not any longer just this empty hope. It is seen as a reality in light of the fall of Babylon in light of the destruction of all that Babylon represented, the end of the the beasts, the false prophets, all these things coming to an end, this is now the promise that they've been waiting for. And then once again, the idea of a wedding is a big part of Israel's story. It's a part of being Yahweh's bride from the very beginning. Right, it's been a part of that story. Um, Yahweh's bride from Mount Sinai, the unfaithfulness and the needing to renew her commitment and covenant with the Creator through the prophets, and seeing the renewal of all creation take place, even in Isaiah 54 and 55. This is a part of Israel's story that is just coming to completion. And John is connecting all those dots so that they see this is what his intention was all along. The hope that he would accomplish these things, right? Setting these things into place. Jesus also used this illustration of a bride in Matthew chapter 22 and 25. And John is drawing on all of these stories, right? Focuses on the fact that the great moment has finally come. You know, when you go to a wedding, you're there and you're waiting for the ceremony to begin. You're waiting for the music. You're waiting to see, you know, the people come in, the the bridesmaids and the bridegroom or the grooms, best whatever they call groomsmen. And finally, the bride comes, you see the vows, pronounce husband and wife, and there's the celebration. It happened, it took place, you were there to witness it. And he's focusing on that great moment when it finally happens between God and his people, which was Israel and now is all who are part of this new Israel. And this is what the world has been waiting for. I mean, from the very beginning, from Genesis 1, from the covenant with Abraham and Moses, the promise throughout the exile, Jesus is the bridegroom, and through 
John, and though John uses this imagery freely enough to allow the church to be both the bride and the guests invited to the wedding, we see in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, these are the true words of God. So the church is both the bride and those who are there at the wedding. Again, the illustration is just to be encompassive and to help our imaginations connect to what God is doing. And so we see this is the fulfillment of the excitement of what is right and just and good. The end of the human rebellion, wickedness, the pride and arrogance, it's finally run its course and it's come to an end. In verse 10, John makes a point that we should not confuse the messenger with the message. And we can fall into idolatry many times by worshiping anything that is not God, right? In verse 10, he says, he fell at the feet of the angel to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. And I think this can happen with people in how they view churches. That church becomes what they see as, um, you know, the way, man, this church is the church and we will, you know, be a part of this church. Of course, in cults, it happens more so. Um, but we can fall into that place where the church is where God is or the pastor or the priest or whoever is the person who now represents. And we actually start to look at that person and hear from them as being infallible, whatever they say is true and right. And I know that there are people who I really like and I respect and I listen to them and I have more of an openness to receive from them because of my appreciation of who they are, my respect for them. But I still have to have the filter and still have to have my own discernment and I have to you know, allow these things to process in how I see God revealing himself through Christ and through scripture. And it's, we have to be careful of these things. This idea of worship or idolatry can even happen with the Bible, where people will actually think of the Bible as the authority instead of God who gives the Bible authority. And there's a big, big difference. You see, we can misinterpret the Bible. It's been done. It's still being done. And there's many times where I've done it with the best intentions, and I feel different now than I did, say, 10 years ago. But what gives the Bible authority is God. And so we have to recognize that the Bible isn't the authority. God is the authority who gives credibility to the Bible. But we have to be careful we don't take that for granted or abuse that or go off base with that, right? And it's important to recognize these things. And I know people get really a little bit uh, sensitive in something like that. But it's real important to see that because some people... In, see their interpretation of scripture as God and what happens if it's wrong? What are they really doing? They are, in a sense, having an idolatrous, you know, connection to something other than God, especially if it is wrong. Um, and so we just have to remember from the beginning of this book, it is the testimony of Jesus. 
And that's what the angel says, right? And the idea, the meaning of the testimony of Jesus is the testimony that Jesus has brought out. In other words, the declaration that Jesus has made about who God is, what God is doing, that's connected to this sense of worship. And it's interesting because the angel, the angel's rebuke highlights the differences between Jesus and all others. Right? Remember from the beginning of this book, that's the whole point, the testimony of Jesus. Verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. One translation says he makes war justly, which I thought was interesting. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out from his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image." The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of his mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Pretty vicious. Um, Remember the Jewish expectation of Messiah from the things that we have been able to uncover written at that time, they were, there were a lot of ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Some thought that he would play the role of a prophet. Some thought he would play the role of a priest. Some thought it would be the role of a king. There were people who thought the Messiah to fulfill all that they saw in Scripture and believed the Messiah to be would have to actually be more than one person. There was thoughts that the Messiah would be actually two people coming to rule and reign. And, and these are just the things that we have written. We don't even know how people understood the things that were written. But we do see the idea that's probably... Um, most common uh, would be that one of royalty. And so there was this royal messianic movement that was pretty popular, apparently at least in the writings again that were there, and it seemed to be pretty large at the time of Christ. 
And the idea of being royal is really that of king. One of the tasks of the Messiah would be to fight the battles against Israel's armies, both the pagan and then those who were rebellious within Israel, those who were siding with the pagans or working with them, like the tax collectors or some of the people who were making money off of the children of Israel because of the pagan rule that was there. And so the thought of a royal king to come and conquer the enemy was pretty prevalent. And this would have to go alongside of the purifying people to worship and renew the temple, uh, to set the temple back into a place of prominence so that they would have the sacred place to worship. Um, we talked about this a little bit, um, I think, Sunday when we talked about the importance of the way people saw things and how they thought of worship and the temple uh, and why they rejected Jesus and some of the things that he said and why he was in contrast to the Pharisees. And it's because Jesus showed up with no sign or interest of being a military leader, um, no interest in cleaning up or restoring the temple, that that wasn't his focus, that a lot of people just assumed he couldn't be the Messiah because the things they saw as being the Messiah were not a part of his agenda. But Jesus was much more radical than that, more than they expected. Throughout his ministry, his main theme, which has been the main theme of this book of Revelation, is the kingdom of God. And the idea of the kingdom of God was something that was prominent in the things that he said, and it's been prominent throughout this entire book. The kingdom of the world has passed the baton to the Lord, the hallelujah for the Lord God, the Almighty. He has become king. All this is linked directly to Jesus and his victory. But Jesus' victory is not the victory that anyone expected. It wasn't the victory they were looking for. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, where everyone was crying, Hosanna, which means save now, Hosanna to the son of David, right? David the king, now you're the king. We're, we're recognizing your connection in this royal identity here. But it was not a victory over Rome. It was actually a victory over the darkness that was behind Rome. It was a victory over the darkness that is behind every empire like Babylon. It is the victory over the darkness that is behind humanity. Right? It, it is the darkness that is the real enemy, the one who had led humanity, Israel included, into rebellion, rebellion against God, rebellion against the Creator, rebellion against who they were created in the image of God. And Jesus seems to have believed that the ultimate way to fight this true battle was by giving up his life. Right? No one takes my life. I give it up freely. 
It was so much a part of his conversation that that was his intention all along. And so it's important, again, that we see that, that that was the intention of what he wanted, right? It was... It would be a misunderstanding to take all this military imagery that's being used here at the end of these verses and to not see them as symbolic or to put them into a place that Jesus didn't intend them or show it. It would be misunderstanding of actually all that Jesus said and did to suppose that his followers were supposed to act in a military way against Rome or against anybody, that this was going to be how God ushered in his kingdom. That's not his intention. And we don't see that in Christ. It doesn't happen against Rome or whatever is represented by the beast and these creatures that came out of the sea or with many heads and all these things. The victory here is a victory over all the pagan power and is a victory over violence itself. It is a victory over everything that is against the heart and will of God. And so it is much broader than just something that is taking place geographically here. And this symbolism that he uses in these verses, it's taken directly from a few places. From Isaiah 11, where the Messiah will judge the nations with the sword of his mouth. From Psalm 2, where he will rule them with a rod of iron. Isaiah 63, where he will tread on the winepress of the wrath of God, which we talked about earlier in chapter 14, I think it was. All these things are referring to the Messiah and the way that he would rule. So he's pulling all these passages and he's attributing them to Jesus. But we have to take... Jesus and what he is and interpret these analogies. You understand? So we don't take the analogies and interpret Jesus. We take Jesus and interpret these analogies. And it wasn't violent and it wasn't militarily. It was actually sacrificially. And it was submitting to God even at his own life. John's readers know how the actual weapons which Jesus uses to win battles, they know that it's his own blood. They know that he is the living sacrifice from the beginning of this book, the lamb that was slain. We've seen it time and time again. And it is in this light that we have to look at the verses 11 through 16 here. Otherwise, we start going into a Rambo state of mind. You know, we're going to go and, yes, God's going to come. He's going to slay all these people and kill them. It's going to be brutal. The ultimate justice which drives this battle is the justice of God's love, which will not work with anything other than the word of God, which is Christ. Right? It is the words that come out of his mouth. Right, He is dressed, in verse 13, in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The idea of on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, is, again, something that Rome used in tribute to Caesar. And so John is saying, no, here is the king of kings and lord of lords. Even though Rome crucified him, he is 
ruling because he has conquered death. Verse 15, it says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. Again, it's the words that he uses. And throughout Scripture in the New Testament, word of God is synonymous with gospel. It is the gospel. It is the good news. It's not the Bible. It's the gospel. When it says the word of God is alive in power, sharper than any two-edged sword, it's referring to the gospel, right? Those kinds of things. And then notice the fine linen and that's white and clean in verse 14 matches the bride's dress in verse 8. Right? So we're talking about this connection with those who were coming and with the bride. And remember, those who were persecuted were clothed in white. Love will win because in Jesus it has trampled the grapes of wrath once and for all. If the military imagery is symbolic, then I think so too is the birds, like the vultures eating the flesh of all those who follow the beast and the false prophets. I think, again, it's an image. What all it's supposed to represent, I'm not sure. But I I think that it's important to recognize that the robe that is dipped in blood that Jesus is wearing is his own blood. And salvation is both intimate, festive like a wedding, and is aggressive like a battle that needs to defeat evil. Remember, Paul said we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so I think the symbolism here is to get to the things that are underneath all that is going on I don't think it's a literal battle that's going to take place, just as we spoke about with Armageddon. Okay, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel come down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. All these names, it's interesting. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. There's some questions here, right? And I don't think I'm going to answer them all, but I'll throw out some of the questions I have and how I kind of work through them. Question one is, why wasn't Satan thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophets? Right? Why does it seem he gets a get-out-of-jail-free card? kind of a thing 
after this thousand-year period of time. Two, what does John mean when he speaks of the thousand years in which these this first resurrected people reign with the Messiah? And then another question is, how does the first resurrection called in verse 6 differ from the implied second resurrection? There isn't it isn't called a second resurrection, but it's implied because of the first. This is the only passage in Scripture where millennium is even mentioned. It's amazing how much doctrine is pieced together with just a few verses, right? I don't know about you guys, what you've heard, but the idea of this millennial reign, there are books written on this, and it's appearing once here, and then there's a lot of trying to connect the dots in so many ways. Remember, God's not throwing away an old world. He's renewing all of creation. And I think that's important as we try to move to maybe answer some of these questions because it's not like God is going to destroy everything. God is renewing everything, right? You've heard, you know, he destroyed the world by rain, but now he's going to destroy it by fire. That's not what's happening, right? We're not seeing a destruction. We're seeing a renewal. And the first thing is the temporary binding of Satan the devil. Remember, nothing in the book of Revelation has really been neat and tidy and altogether clear. There has been a lot of things that aren't chronological that we can start to say, well, didn't this all end in chapter 11? Then how come it's happening again? Right? So there's a lot of things that just trying to fit them into a chronological sequence of events, it, it doesn't work out. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we're moving forward. We had the seals, we had to pause between the sixth and seventh seal. Judgment was suspended while the suffering and the martyred people of God uh, were sealed in chapter 7. And then between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we had to pause again. And this time while John was given the scroll from which he then prophesied about God's witnessing people, right? Those people were seen under the image and like Moses and Elijah, um, the prophets of God, you know, rose again from the dead, the death and resurrection, that the world would come to glorify God through this testimony of theirs in chapters 10 and 11. And just here's a, an, another unexpected pause, right? Everything is thrown into this lake of fire, but now here's a pause. The devil, Satan, he is put away for a thousand years. It's almost like there's a pause again. And notice it is about the suffering and the martyred people of God, that that's still in the focus because that has been the focus throughout this entire book. It is about the suffering of those people of God who are celebrated as the true witnesses, the priests who will share in God's rule. In verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I think this helps us 
with those two questions is understanding that things aren't really neat and clear and that it's about the martyrs and not so much a sequential period of events. Um, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, there is a role being played by the accuser. And he is one last time playing that role. Even though he will again use it to try and deceive, to accuse in the wrong way. In verse 8, it says that he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. It's as if he must do the worst that he can so that there cannot even be the least suspicion that anything else can come of this, right? He, he's allowed to do all that he can so that the accusation is finally unwarranted, unaccounted for. It's like he has to have that final moment to present his lies and accusations so that in the, his overthrow, it will be clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is over. He has tried his best. You know, in those like action or suspense or horror movies, when you think the bad guy is dead, but he's really not. You know, it's like he's gone, but all of a sudden he jumps up and everyone goes, ah, they scream because it's not quite over. And then finally it ends, you know, he finally gets killed and finally it's done with. It's, it strikes me of that kind of thing. It's like, oh, it's over, but we got to make sure it's over. And so there's this kind of finality that is presented here even more so because of this pause because of this period of time that takes place right and so what we're seeing here is that it's the final knockout he finally is done for but before this can happen the reign of jesus with and through these millennial people must be established by this first resurrection and John itemizes these people not just as martyrs, but specifically as those who had been beheaded for their witness. This, too, may be symbolic. Now, I know a lot of people today are going around saying, see, this is a sign of the end, because now we have the extreme Islamic people beheading people. Um, that's been happening for a long time. That's nothing new. Right? So we can't say, oh, it's just happening. No, it's been happening. It, it hasn't paused, really, in a long time. We just haven't been aware of it. But it's been going on and throughout history. But it, it's kind of interesting that these are set aside or it's presented in a different way. Um, it might be symbolic to heavenly citizenship, and this is why I say that. Roman citizens, when they were executed, they were beheaded. Anyone who was not a Roman citizen was killed in a much more slow and painful way, including crucifixion. And so this could be symbolic in connecting the fact that just as the citizen of Rome is beheaded, the citizens of heaven were beheaded, but that's where their citizenship is. 
Um, and, and so it might be symbolic. Again, I'm kind of just sharing with you things that I read that I thought, well, that sounds feasible. Um, is the thousand years symbolic? I think so, right? Numbers have been used symbolically throughout this book. And it would be kind of strange that all of a sudden he would throw out a literal, obviously round number into the mix, right? There's been all these, you know, three and a half years and and this half time and there was, you know, the 144,000 and there was, you know, this many elders and all these things, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, all these numbers have been symbolic and all of a sudden here's one, oh, this one's literal. Um, Some actually thought, that around a thousand years was going to be around thousand AD. There was going to be the end of this millennial, right? People thought that it's a thousand. It's it's the time. That's what the you know Revelation talked about that thousand years. And so there was a big uproar around a thousand AD that the end was going to be, or Christ was going to come again. Same thing happened in Y two K, right? I remember hearing a number of studies. I even shared one, um, to my horror now, uh, that, you know, that was going to be the t- end of this final millennial reign. Um, and so I think it's important to see some of these things that, you know, I don't see it as being literal. I'm going with this. In the opening lines, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. That's taken from Daniel chapter 7, where the thrones were for the ancient of days, right? It was one like the Son of Man. That's who the thrones were for. But Daniel 7 itself interprets the phrase corporately so that saints and most the Most High receive the kingdom and the authority to judge. And it looks like then as though John is referring not to a thousand-year period on earth, but to the heavenly reality which obtains during a particular period. In other words, it's going to shift over and happen at a certain time. And the time is just given a thousand years to kind of give us a passing of time. Um, And so that's kind of where I'm leaning but to the heavenly reality as it takes place. Remember, Jesus, according to the whole New Testament, is already reigning, right? In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's present tense. It's not one day after that thousand years. It's already his. Um, We see that in 1 Corinthians 15 and other places too. And so what John is saying is that the martyrs are already reigning with him. This is echoed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, right? We are already seated there. There is a positioning And so the idea of the thrones that are taking place, the idea of positioning, the idea from Daniel chapter 7 being inclusive 
of not just God, but the people of God, leads me to believe that this is kind of where it is leaning, that it is talking about us reigning with Christ, and it's talking about something that is going to happen at the appropriate time. Um, That's kind of how I see it. As to the binding of Satan in verse 2, Jesus declared that he had already accomplished this, accomplished this, which was why he was able to perform exorcisms and cast out demons. In Matthew 12, 29, he gave the illustration, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, right? I wouldn't be able to do these unless I was actually able to conquer the strong man. Jesus said he saw Satan falling from the sky when he sent the disciples out to continue the work. And and so, again, even though Satan was bound, he was still able to work through Judas. He was still able to work through the Pharisees and some of the Romans. And so, even though Christ was victorious, evil still continues, right? And so I think these things are other ways of just kind of looking at this, right? It's kind of like maybe a cosmic version of the story and seeing it from a different perspective. Um, And I, I think it would be a mistake to try and get real literal here. And assume that these are all having to be literal years and these literal meanings to these things that are taking place. I think what is most important is not to be dogmatic. We have to hold on to the central things that have been declared throughout this book. And he's made it clear. Victory to the Lamb or victory of the Lamb. The call to share his victory through faith and perseverance. Um, we can look at the final events like this in chapter 20 or like Paul presents them in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 26, or again in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Bottom line is it's clear who wins the victory, who abolishes death and opens the door to the renewed creation. I think that's the bottom line. We can come away with that for sure. This is just another way of viewing that as we've seen Paul do it in some other ways, and again, Christ allude to it also. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The judgment of the dead. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. 
and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 38 of God's victory over the nations. God, the good shepherd, cleansing Israel's heart from sin and returning them from exile, seen in terms of now the resurrection of the dead, right? Ezekiel 38 then focuses on Magog in the north and Gog, its king. And John seems to be presenting Magog and God, Gog as two nations. And I think symbolically representing the four corners of the earth, as he's mentioning there. I think that the point of Gog and Magog will mount a last vain attack on God's people, even after their rescue from Babylon, is once again... You know, Satan seems to be a part of this divine plan to ensure that all evil is rooted out of the world so that the transformation into the new heaven and new earth can take place. There has to be kind of this sweeping of the floor before it can be revarnished, right? We, we have to get rid of everything old that is there before we can renew what needs to be done at that point. And everything that is swept up is just contaminated. It's like, you know, germs that have to be put away into, you know, or old uh, hyperdermic needles that have to go into that biohazard container. It's like, these are dangerous. They just need to be gone and they need to be gotten rid of forever. The idea of Satan being used by God and then destroyed is a little weird, at least for me, it's like you start thinking of like, why would God allow him to come out and then destroy him? It's, is he using Satan? Is that okay? And I think the problem is it's difficult because we have a hard time moving from what is metaphor and a symbol to reality. Right, it's one of those things. It's like if I'm saying we're late to go someplace. Oh, we need to we need to fly, you know. We're going out the door, or we have to be at my mom's house. Okay, we got to fly. And then we show up in our car, and you think, wait a second, I thought you said you were going to fly. You know, no, you drove. It's a figure of speech that means something, but it actually means something else, right? And so I think a lot of times that can happen also here where this means something, but maybe it actually means something else. Maybe there's more going on here than than just, you know, trying to take it literally and put these things into literal form. It is interesting how many words he uses for Satan, the devil, the accuser. Is this a person that he's directing, directed at? And again, when we say person, what do we mean, right? When I say person, I think of you guys. I think of people. Well, it's not a person. What is this being? Is it multifaceted? Is it many beings or is it more? Is it something else? Are these names helping us to connect to something that is more 
that is actually there, that is real, but it's hard for us in our limited understanding of spiritual things to define, so we give it names. Right? The accuser, the devil, the Satan, all these names, the serpent of old, um, all these things to help us connect the dots to this darkness, this evil force that is taking place and happening here. Um, I just I have a hard time trying to get very dogmatic and stand in judgment comparing, you know, things as if they're literal. I just find myself getting lost. And even in this kind of military thinking of, of Gog and Magog, as if God were a military leader going to fight in this way, um, this is all a set of pictures, of shifting images. They're pointing beyond themselves to the deepest, darkest mysteries of evil, to the things that are there. And evil is mysterious. It's mysterious when you see it blatantly show up in other areas. And it's mysterious when it sometimes subtly shows up in you, right? Where you said something and it's like, why did you say that was hurtful? That was evil, right? Why would you do something like that to hurt someone intentionally without thinking of it? Where did that come from, right? It's mysterious and it's it's just curious. And it's interesting just how these things all take place in this picture. I think the same thing is true of the geographical symbols of the nations. Um, this has, I think, as much to do with the Middle East as the thousand years has to do with the calendar. Again, I think the point is that evil must be allowed under certain controls to do its worst so that it can at last be defeated. If I were to simplify things, that's how I would. And it's interesting that Though Satan calls the nations for a battle, no battle ever takes place, right? The battle of chapter 19 in which the rider on the white horse wins the victory by means of the sword of his mouth is the last battle. We don't see any other fighting taking place. We just see them taken away. There isn't really a fight. It's kind of like a, a posturing and then it's done. It's just... Very interesting. Uh, <laughs> a lot of questions. Um, there are the last great powers, death and Hades. Death is both the fact and the power of death, and Hades is the abode of the dead, the place from which they cannot escape except by this great new act of God. The sea was not thought to be part of the grave or Hades. And that's why it is given a different place. Those who died by drowning in the sea and were never recovered for burial formed a separate category of the dead. And I believe that's because in that time, that's how they saw that. They didn't see people who were lost at sea as being in the grave or Hades. They were lost to sea. And that's why C had this evil connotation to it many times, right? And so they too will now be brought to stand before the great white throne, which seems to have replaced the original throne in chapters 4 and 5. Um, again, I think the point is everyone is going to fall 
under this, and everyone is going to be accounted for, even those who they thought were lost and not to be accounted for. Some people say there are two different judgments, this white throne judgments and the other judgments that take place. Some that things are transitioning and actually being reconstructed, not a new judgment, but that things are actually changing. Again, I think the point is that God, the creator, at last takes his seat for final judgment. Here is throughout scripture, this judgment will be in accordance with the totality of the life that each person has lived. And that seems is what's written in the books, right? Everything that a person has done, they're giving account for this. Now, I don't think this is in contrast with being justified by faith in Christ. This is just an overall picture of the work of the Spirit in humanity, right? Because let's face it, Christians sin plenty, right? And it doesn't mean they're not forgiven, but it's still accounted for, right? It's still understood. If I hurt someone as a Christian... If I'm that other person getting hurt, I'd like to know that God sees that and cares. And just because it's done by another Christian doesn't mean it doesn't count. It doesn't mean anything. right? It doesn't mean that my judgment is going to be uh, outside of Christ and his forgiveness. But I think it's being encompassing all these things. Um, this is that overall picture. The most important book, it seems, at this end is the book of life. John mentioned it in chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8, where it was the Lamb's book of life, uh, written before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't believe John is trying to explain some predestination or things like that, but trying to make clear that God is life and separation from God is separation from that life. Death and Hades being destroyed. Now, again, this is something hard to wrap our minds around. The undoing of death and what that would look like. I, I, I can't imagine that. Death is so much a part of our lives and it is so um, final. I mean, Scripture calls it the last enemy. The process of bodily corruption and decay being reversed is almost science fiction in how I think of it, but it's part of this new heaven and this new earth. It is something that is part of the renewal of creation that God is doing. In verse 11, it says, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. It seems earth and heaven has been corrupted by the evil within it. To what degree the heavens have been corrupted? Well, we, we have an idea of, again, this darkness, the evil Satan and the rebellion being a heavenly realm. Um, the idea of evil running away from the presence of God, just like cockroaches, right, when you turn on the light. It's like it, it cannot stay in that presence. And, and I think this is telling us through the remainder of this chapter, that those who would flee at the revealing of God and his reign or his presence 
will find themselves ultimately being removed from his presence forever. The dragon, the monster, the false prophet, the prostitute, the whore, have been destroyed. And it's time for God and the Lamb to be revealed. The rule of death is at an end. The rule of life is about to begin. And that's what we're seeing take place here. We're seeing this change. We're seeing that God is doing something new and beginning something new. And it is important that we see how he's doing something new is seen and revealed in Jesus. He is the one who is worshipped. He is the one who the angel alludes to. He is the one that this book is about. He is the conquering one. He is the one whose robe is dipped in blood. Again, it is his own blood. And he conquers. And those who follow him, like the martyrs, conquer with him. And so when does this all take place? Someday, it's taking place. It's raining now. The kingdom is happening now. But when will it all finally take place? I don't know. No one does. But the focus needs to be, I think, what John was trying to do to his readers is you're playing a part in this incredible scenario, this incredible incredible story and you have a role in it and it's you know we have all these chapters we have you know the first chapter and the idea of creation and god second chapter establishing a people through abraham we have a third chapter right god giving law and direction to the people you know we have a fourth chapter could be you know the people in their rebellion against god we have a fifth chapter with jesus and the messiah fulfilling all that was intended by the people of Israel. We have the sixth chapter, which is the birth of the church. And then we have the sixth chapter continuing, which we're in. And then we have what John writes here is the seventh chapter, how it's going to end. But we're still in chapter six point B, right? We're still living in this story that's ongoing and maybe it can help us to live it well to know how it's going to end, to know how it began, to know what's going on, to know the direction we're going because of Christ, and to know the direction we're heading as all this is going to come to an end. Maybe it will help us to live, because his intention for this book wasn't for them to give up, but was for them to live boldly where they were at in the place of persecution, knowing that eventually God was going to put this all to an end. And I think that's the hope that we still hold on to, that it comes to that conclusion. Any thoughts or questions? Wow, we got away easy there. <laughs> okay, well, let's pray. Thank you guys for sticking through that. That was a lot to go through in one sitting. Thank you for staying awake. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. And I do pray, Lord, that this would be encouraging. Lord, even as violent and grim as it seems, I I think, God, to appreciate the glorious work of salvation, there has to be a clear declaration of the evil and injustice and chaos that takes place. And how you deal with that helps us to appreciate how severe things really are. And I pray we would appreciate these things, Lord. I pray we would embrace how important it is to live for you, to be willing, Lord, to give our lives for you, especially at a time when that is not the case, when we get to live in the luxury uh, that we do. And there is more temptation to, to fall prey to the things that are mentioned here in the book and with Babylon and all those things that partake uh, with Babylon. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us a heart that is passionate for you, that gives ourselves fully to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.